This is what is the heart, lesson number 13. We're just calling this a summary. Uh, this will review everything we've looked at the last 12 weeks. There's a few new things we add at the end. But let's just review all of this. If I were to say there's anything the Lord has given me new or special for the body of Christ, it would be this teaching here. Not that there's anything new under the sun. We have to be careful anytime we say, I've got something nobody else has ever heard. Uh, and even if they might do have something no one else has ever heard, they better be able to back it up with a lot of Scripture. And thankfully, we've been able to do that with these teachings because they have a lot of Scripture in them. If you can ever understand this doctrine here, not just with your mind, but really get it into your being, you'll be able to revolutionize any scenario in your life, any marital problem, any familial problem, any PTSD. This doctrine, as we've been studying it the last three months, totally strips from you any excuse for any misbehavior ever. You can never say blank. I just, I, you don't know where I've come from. This fixes where you came from. You don't know what's been done to me. This fixes what's been done to you or the fallout. Well, you, I had a hard day. This fixes your hard day. This scripture, this doctrine totally strips from us any excuse to stay the same. And that's why it is so critical. We don't just know it with our head and say, well, that's really good. But we actually do something with it. So we know the heart of it is you change what you think, you change what you want, you change what you emote, and it'll totally revolutionize your heart. The reason you don't change is because you refuse to change what you think, you refuse to change what you want, you refuse to change your emotions. And I heard one theologian say about the church, he was talking to pastors about churches, he said, your church is perfectly designed to keep producing the same thing it produces. And the point was, if you don't like what your church is producing, you have to change the systems in your church. We apply that to our life. Your life is perfectly fine-tuned to keep producing what you have right now. And hoping and taking notes doesn't change anything. And even a sermon or a preacher giving you the answer you need, the doctor giving you the medicine you need, that doesn't fix anything until you take the medicine or do what you're taught. So the name of this game is responsibility, application, and change. And I'm finding the longer I pastor, the hardest thing it is to do is, is to convince you to change and keep the change in consistency. Change and just keep changing. And this region makes people lazy. Religion makes people lazy. And I don't know, maybe American wealth makes us lazy. But the name of the game is change. We press on to the saving of our soul. We have an upward calling. We don't have it all yet, so we just keep pressing. And I don't ever want to think I peaked five years ago in any arena of my life. I don't want to think my best years of marriage were 10 years ago. My best financial situation was four years ago. The best relationship I had with my kids was two years ago. I never want to think my peak was in my past because that's pathetic and lazy. Because if you serve God and you serve him for real, your best years are still ahead, even in times of persecution and hell on earth against the church. Amen. So if your life is falling apart, guess what? It is your fault. It's your doing. So quit shooting holes in your boat. Amen. And quit yelling at people and shooting at them. Fix yourself. This lesson will summarize what we've covered in the last 12 lessons. So the heart and the spirit are different entities. This is for our circles, the controversial statement, that if we can get past it and see the validity here, it will begin to help us. We, of course, in this church... 
understand the heart and the spirit are two different things. It, was, it is biblically impossible for them to be the same. And the reason we felt like they were the same was that the doctrine that was being worked out could only go so far, and nobody ever bothered to pioneer it further. And so we just kind of assumed, all right, the heart and the spirit are the same thing. And we, but before that, it was the soul, the heart, and the spirit were all the same thing. And so my question is always, if the heart, the soul, and the spirit are the same thing, why are there three different words in the Hebrew and the Greek? I don't, I don't understand that. Recognizing the difference between the human spirit and the human heart is the most critical point to this doctrine. Conflating the two entities can produce harmful effects, such as misinterpretation and misapplication of certain scriptures. We must see and thoroughly understand how these two components of the human being are different. So Revelation 2.21, the Lord says, I, Jesus, gave her, Jezebel, that is the pastor's wife of the church there, I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed of sickness, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation except they repent of their deeds, and I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he, Jesus Christ, which searches the hearts, excuse me, the reins, which is our Greek word for emotions. I search the emotions and the hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. So we're reviewing the last 12 weeks of teaching on the heart, and this is a verse that shows us that the heart and the spirit are different entities. Because if Jesus Christ is still searching the hearts of the New Testament church, they're not this, one of our points of argument is that they're not the Spirit. You don't search the Spirit. It's seated in heavenly places. It's a new creature in Christ. But the Lord is dealing with sin in the church here, and he's searching the heart of the Jezebel wife of this pastor of the church there in Revelation 2. He's searching the heart of those that commit fornication with her. He is still the Lord, which is what he said of himself in Jeremiah 17. I am he that searches the heart and the reins. He's still doing the same thing. He searches our hearts and our reins because there's things in there that are not proper. Romans 8 says the same thing. He that knows the mind, uh, uh, the will of the Spirit searches the hearts. He that searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit makes intercession according to the will of the Father. We're still having to have our hearts searched even as Hebrew 4.12 says that the Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The reason why is that you can be born again in your spirit and have a wicked heart because they are two different entities. So that being kind of a theme verse there, that even in the New Testament, even among born-again Christians, Jesus Christ has to search our emotions. You can control your emotions. You can control your emotions. If you cannot control your emotions, you're admitting you're demon-possessed. Those are your options. Either you can or you have a devil. Because normal people can control their emotions. Those with demons cannot. So point one, and we had 13 or 14 of these in the first lesson, and uh, we only look at nine real quick because this is a review for the last 12 weeks. Number one, why the heart and the spirit are different entities. Number one, the Lord still searches the hearts and minds, even those in his church. The born-again spirit does not require examination, but the heart certainly does. It is seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The word discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart, whereas the new man is born again of the word of God. First Peter tells us that we're born again of incorruptible seed, the word of God that lives and abides forever. We're born again in our human spirit. We don't need to be discerned or searched or judged there. But our emotions, our mind, our will, we all know our will gets crooked, our mind gets crooked, our emotions get crooked. And this comprises our heart, and that's why the Lord searches it all out. 
We do things even for God that can be done with crooked intentions. Preachers preach for ego sometimes. Preachers take on mission trips out of ego sometimes. That's a corrupt intention and motive, even though you're doing the gospel work. You can receive an offering, and it be God, or receive an offering, and it be avarice and greed, and the differences of the heart. And God still honor the offering, but judge the preacher who received it. Point two, New Testament Christians can have an evil heart of unbelief. How can that be if the heart and the spirit are the same thing? Christians can have an evil heart of unbelief. Our spirit man cannot be evil. It is sealed with the Holy Spirit. But if we allow our heart to grow evil, it will cause us to depart from God. Hebrews 3.12 says, And be careful lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. We know our hearts get weird from time to time, but not our spirit man. Point three, the word of God must be sown in the hearts of men, but the spirit of man is born again of the word of God. Just because you're born again of the word of God doesn't mean you have God's word working in your heart or life. You can be born again this morning, become a new creature in Christ this morning, and know zero about the word of God. And your brain don't know, not know how to think because it's not been renewed. And your emotions not know how to emote because they've not been trained. And you will not know what to want because God's not presented to you the fullness of his will before you. You don't know what to want until it's been presented to you. So even a baby Christian doesn't know what to want yet. Now they'll be led by the Holy Spirit and they'll say, I just know I don't, I don't need to go back to those people. I don't need to go back to my, jo my job at the bar. I just I know that, but I don't know why I know it. That. That's the Holy Spirit. But we don't leave them being led by the Spirit completely. We have to give them the Word of God. And that begins to disciple and change them as we write the Word of God upon the tables of their heart. Yes, Point four, Christians must constantly purify their hearts. That's what James 4.8 says. Purify your hearts, you double-minded, written to New Testament believers. You never say purify your born-again spirit. Purify your hearts. Anybody ever had to purify your heart? Woke up with it pure, but before you went home from work, it was impure, mad, angry, bitter, ready to quit, ready to punch a coworker or whatever your deal might be. Wake up happy with your spouse and want to kill him by noon. At least we have honest Christians. The rest of you purify your heart because you're liars. <laughs> my, my, my wife and I fell asleep on the couch last night after we got done praying. I was reading something on botany. And she woke up this morning. I said, what time did you leave me on the couch? She said, I think it was 2 o'clock. I woke up with a pillow over my face, and I was going to make a joke about, yeah, I, was, I did that. Because <laughs> I know some of you have thought about it in your impure hearts. It's a bad joke, but I thought, yeah. Ah. Double-mindedness leads to impure hearts. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's the verse that also teaches us what the heart is made of. When you purify your heart, you, you, what you do is you clean up your mind. When you clean up your double-mindedness, should I go to church, should I not go to church? Should I go to church, should I not go to church? That produces a dirty heart. Should I forgive, should I not forgive? Should I forgive, should I not forgive? That produces a dirty heart. And these are simple things to clean up. See also 2 Timothy and 1 Peter. The Christian's heart must be established. That's what Hebrews tells us. It's a good thing for the heart to be established in grace. The heart cannot be the born-again spirit if the heart still lacks establishing. 
Because when you're born again, you are seated in heavenly places. But you and I know we've been in seasons of our life where our heart was not established. It wasn't established in church attendance. It wasn't established in evangelism. It wasn't established in forgiveness. We're always working on something that we're still establishing our heart in. But our, our spirit man is perfect. It's in the image and likeness of God. See, seated in heavenly places, but not our heart. We're just proving for a few moments what we proved in the very first lesson, that the heart of man and the spirit of man cannot be the same thing. I was raised up under Brother Hagin. I've read all of his books. I, I still preach out of a Rhema study Bible. And some of those Pentecostal pioneers, they took us as far as to say the heart and the spirit are the same thing, which was wonderful because it meant the soul was something totally different. But they didn't take us further because they ran out of time. So we're proving further that the heart and the spirit are separate because we have to see how to change our hearts. Because in our church, the danger was that, well, it's just not in my heart, which was to say God didn't put it in my spirit, therefore I'm not responsible for going evangelizing. Well, I don't have a heart to work in the nursery. Oh, well, I guess God didn't give you a heart for it, so I can't. Who am I to violate and disciple you into a better place in Christ? It became a giant way to excuse ourselves from maturity and growing up. It's just not in my heart to forgive. Well, you better get it in your heart. <laughs> I just don't have a heart for faith. Yep, and that's why you're going to hell. See, when we understand this doctrine, it eliminates all excuses and puts all responsibility back into our lap so that we would walk with God. We would write the word of God upon the tables of our heart. We would build faith. We would build faith to forgive, even faith to forgive ourselves, even faith to control our own emotions, even faith to come to the house of God, and faith to be a tither, faith to witness to a total stranger. It takes faith. But the reason it's not in your heart is because you haven't bothered to spend time with God on that thing. But if we think our heart and our spirit's the same thing, if it's not in my heart, it just must not be the will of God for me to be there. Well, now you sound like a Calvinist. Well, it's just, he just doesn't, he hasn't ordained me to care for the lost. He hasn't ordained for me to be a tither. He hasn't ordained me to forgive. It's just not in my heart to forgive. I don't feel like I need to forgive. They, when, you, when you don't see the doctrine proper, it opens up to a lot of excuses for carnality, which undermines our maturation and sanctification. So I'm always for uh, breaking down the Word of God to where all responsibility is put back in our hands, and we must walk with God to be fixed. Amen. Amen. The name of the game is sanctification. New Testament Christians can harden their hearts. We're point number six. New Testament Christians can harden their hearts through sin. We are warned to watch out for this hardening effect. The Bible never tells us we can harden our spirit, man, because it's seated in heavenly places. It's a new creature in Christ, but we have to be careful of the hard heart of unbelief. Number seven, we can be born again and have a heart that is not right with God. That's what the Lord, uh, the apostle said to Simon. Your heart is not right with God on this matter. It's a hard way to talk to a baby Christian. I'll tell you, the seeker-friendly church has just about cursed the church to hell with all of our hugs and squishy kisses. And, but this is Simon the Sorcerer. We covered this a couple of lessons ago. Baby Christians just got saved in the revival. And the apostle Peter, the biggest dog on the block, says, you're going to hell. Your heart's not right with God in this matter. You are wicked, and I would repent if I were you. Talking to a baby Christian. Nowadays, we just have all these church moms that just want to hug, hug, hug people through fornication. You can't hug people out of fornication or drug abuse. You rebuke them and cast the devil out of them. You give them the horrible news so they'll appreciate the good news. 
The doctors don't hug you through radiation and chemo. They tell you, here's the honest truth. It's going to be hell on earth the next six weeks. But if you'll trust me and submit to the treatments, we can, we, we can fix you. You're going to lose your hair. You're going to vomit. You're going to be sick as a dog. We're going to have to check your liver and your enzymes. But if you'll submit to this process, I can give you 20 years more life. And you'll say, doctor, do what you must. And now the modern church says, preacher, how dare you? Where's my hot latte? Where are the pretty girls in the short skirts on the worship team? <laughs> Sleeping with the pastors where they're at. Point eight, born-again believers can deceive their own heart. Wow. For if we hear the word but don't do it, we deceive ourselves. But your spirit man is born again of the word of God. This would be impossible if the heart and the spirit were the same. The heart can be exercised. That's our Greek word, gymnazo. I think we can see the word gymnastics in there. The heart can be exercised with wicked practices like covetousness. Written to New Testament believers. Now, can you ever imagine the doctrine that says you can exercise your born-again spirit with wickedness? It doesn't fit. But your heart, you and I know, we can exercise. When you get in the habit of always yelling at family members, you've exercised your heart with wicked practices. When you get into a habit of always stealing the tithe, you've exercised your heart with covetousness. When you get in a practice of always getting on your phone and looking for porn, you've exercised your heart with wicked practices. That's not your spirit man, that's your heart. The spirit man is baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. How can it be exercised with anything less than holiness? So I just say, see the full list, 13 reasons why the spirit and the heart are different entities in less than one, which is where we talked about the threefold nature of man and the heart problem. So we're just reviewing. So our next point, the definition of our heart. If our heart and our spirit cannot be the same thing, we then have to have a good, worthy definition that accounts for, because we're dealing with Bible doctrine, let's say that it must account for at least 95% of the scriptures. All doctrine has scriptural tension where you have verses that are outliers that we can't sort into doctrine. Every doctrine is that way. Every doctrine. There's not a single doctrine that is perfectly resolved. If there were, we'd have no divisions in the church. Whosoever believeth and is baptized shall be saved. See, you have to be water baptized to make heaven. What about the thief on the cross? They, we're running into outliers already on something as simple as salvation, water baptism. So I've studied this, this doctrine now for 20 years, since about 2001, and I've come up with about four or five verses on the heart out of about 800 verses on the heart that don't fit the definition we're about to give. I think that's pretty good because that seems to be a lot better than the doctrine of salvation. And for what it's worth, they say about 2,500 verses deal with money, but only 250 deal with salvation. But you have over, over 800 that deal with the heart. So just so you know, these Bible statistics, we ought to be people of the Bible so we can know when scriptures are falling in line to a doctrine and maybe they're outside the perimeter. Anyway, since the heart and the spirit are not the same, we still have a soul to account for. And our definition of the heart must account for all variables. Thankfully, I believe the Lord gave me the definition of the heart in 2008 while I was helping mine surveyors at the bottom of the 221 stope, 1,200 feet underground. 
Because I was just pastoring this church, and you guys were so well taught then that if I didn't give you a succinct answer, you would have rejected me in my first six months of pastoring or so. And so, thankfully, the Lord's smarter than all of us and had like a super checkmate. And just so I was in the truck there with the surveyors, and the Lord spoke to me. I'd been praying for several days because I said, Lord, I need a definition of the heart. This church is going to kill me. They're going to stone me because I've undermined Brother Hagen. I've cross-plowed Pastor Vaughn, and I'm the new kid on the block. If I don't give them a worthy definition, they're not going to trust me. And, and wait a minute, and I might have a shorter internship than I thought. This might be a win-win for everybody. <laughs> Maybe I can run away from this place, especially since we were beginning to deal with serious internal sin in those days. And then, unfortunately, he gave me a good definition. And we've proved it for... 14 years now. 2008 is 14 years ago. It's hard to believe. So here's the definition the Lord gave me at the bottom of the 221 stope. That's just a working heading in mining terminology. The heart is the manifestation of the operation of the soul of man. That is, the heart is the manifestation of the operation of the mind, the operation of the will, and the operation of the emotions of man, whether born again or lost. The heart is whatever a man thinks and keeps thinking keeps on thinking whatever man wants and keeps on wanting and whatever man emotes and keeps on emoting. And this is a succinct definition. It accounts for 95% of all of our verses on the heart. And when you meditate on the definition, and I haven't changed it a bit in 14 years, there's nothing to tweak on this. You realize there are demonic thoughts that come, but that's not your heart. There are demonic wants that come, like I want a divorce, but that's not your heart. There are demonic uh, emotions that flare up out of nowhere, just anger or rage, but that's not you. But if you don't extinguish it, it'll settle upon your mind, your will, and your emotions. It'll begin to put down roots, and it will become you. You will divorce. You will give in to fornication. You will have a crazy mind. That's how it works in the negative. To work it in the positive, if you realize you're crazy, get a hold of your mind. If you realize you're full of lust, get a hold of your desires. If you realize that, that your wants and your emotions are squirrely, you just tell those emotions, shut up. Some, some folks are so emotionally unstable, you need like an emotional handler. You almost need to be like trained like a dog. Does that insult you? Because Paul and Peter and Jesus called human beings dogs all the time. I, as much as I preach against animals, I have actually had a lot of animals in my life, and I have trained animals. And they invented this wonderful thing called the choke collar. And they have the little prongs that stick in. Sometimes with the last dog I had with the choke collar, I thought, I need to take that out and file every one of those little pokers. Because you can just pop that thing and that dog would sit. Sometimes you need that on your life emotionally. Especially if you're emotionally unstable. And thank God we are created to be emotional beings. And every emotion in the Bible that we have, you can find it in God. Except for the sinful ones like... Uh, I don't, Jealous. Well, no, he's a jealous God. He's a God of wrath, God of anger, God of peace, God of joy. There's a couple I have made a list of that were not in God, but we've made up. But for the most part, every emotion that we have was found in God. First, the emotion is not the problem. You're, you're out of control is the problem. So you may need to have somebody beside you that when you flare up with your emotional hemorrhoid again, you can look and say, judge me, tux medicate me, and they can just say, shh, chill out. Remember the Tux commercials? They'd strike that match. Let's, let's give you a little bit of medical lesson. 
and old TV, because now my kids were just introduced to commercials a year ago because they didn't have commercials on streaming until recently. So, and they only play the same four over, so my kids can quote every commercial now. They are the greatest progressive salespeople you've ever, they, they can quote. So hemorrhoids, you know what hemorrhoids are. The British call them piles. That's when nether region meat swells up and bleeds, right? And apparently it burns. So on the tux medicated pads, this was a commercial for, and if you look at the ingredients, it's really just essential oils like hazelnut and witch oil or something. Witch hazel, like, so you're just throwing juju on your rear end is what you're doing. <laughs> so it's a, it's a little medicated pad. I don't know. I never use it. Praise the Lord. Keep me in all my ways, Lord. <laughs> and they'd always strike a match, and that match was hemorrhoids. And whoever had it at home going, amen, you know that's right. That's exactly what it feels like. And then they take that pad and go, Pfft. Apparently it's very successful. Sold a lot of tux medicated pads. Maybe your emotions flare up like hemorrhoids and make everybody in your home miserable. And you need somebody to go, chill out. Practice forgiveness. Practice peace. Maybe we should buy you the doggy shock collar and maybe have Kale write you an app so anytime you rage out, that app just goes which introduces another product called Depends. And we would put those adult diapers on you because some of you would just stay wet all day long for the first six months of your training because that's how out of control you are with your emotions. All right. <laughs> so you can get a hold of it and not be so emotional in your heart because emotions are wonderful, but you have to be taught by the Bible how to use them. We rejoice not... When, right and, uh, when, when wickedness prevails. But we do rejoice when right and truth prevail. David said, they rejoice. They, they cheer over me when I fall. Don't gloat over me, my enemy. That's an inappropriate use of emotions. But we rejoice in the joy of the Lord, and we shout unto the Lord with a voice of triumph. That's proper use of joy. There's a proper use of anger, too. And there's an improper use. Same with wrath, same with jealousy, same with envy. We covet, not money, spiritual gifts. Anyway, all right. So that's the definition of the heart. I would commend you, most of you who've been with me long enough, know that definition, and you've applied it to your own life. You can change anything. You can change anything. You can change anything. You can beat any form of PTSD, even the most horrific Iraq, Afghanistan, Vietnam War PTSD, just by working that definition. We, I shared with you last week, uh, uh, Pastor Caleb is an Afghanistan war vet, and he shared with me some of his PTSD is watching movies about the war or whatever. And anytime he hears the Muslim call to prayer, even Miss Tiffany said he'll tense up. So I shared that, I think, last Sunday night. He told me this week, Pastor, I purposely went and watched an Iraq war movie just to listen to it. And he said the, the call to prayer came on as just part of the background story. And he said even one of the boys said, Daddy, that sounds weird. And he said, I'm going to listen to it. I'm going to listen to it because I'm not going to let this control me. I'm not, there's no reason to have fear being in the United States some fear that was put in me over in Afghanistan because you're always on edge because you're in a war zone and there's Muslims all around you. And they're not all wicked people, but there's a lot that want to kill you. And you're associating the intense, intense training of war with a Muslim call to prayer. And it just produces a PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. 
And I share with you that my experience with the Muslim call to prayer is totally different. It's Brother Robert screaming at the imams, Jesus Christ is Lord in South Africa. Anytime that thing was screaming and we were at Pastor Casey's house, Robert would go out on the back porch and go, Jesus Christ is Lord in proper Sparta fashion. And then to know that the Zulus had just robbed the mosque and made the imam, held him at gunpoint. They robbed the local mosque at the time of prayer. But the Zulus said, no, no, before we leave, it's your time to pray, right, imam? Yes. You're not going to call to prayer. You're going to sing, who let the dogs out? And so then they made that imam call out over his minaret, who let the dogs out? Roof, roof. You better rough or we're going to shoot you. Roof, rough. So when I hear the call to prayer, I chuckle. But someone who's been to Iraq, when they hear the call to prayer, they get real nervous. They zone out. They, they panic because they don't have a weapon on them because that's their experience. But you can diffuse any of it. You can even diffuse that turd button in your soul that makes you a jerk to your family if you want to. Amen. All right. The heart acts like the mind. We got to go. We got to move quick. Numerous scriptures confirm that the heart acts like the mind. Our heart is what we think and keep thinking. If we want to change our hearts, we must change what we think and keep thinking. We bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Here are just a few New Testament scriptures because I know the arguments, well, you're taking everything out of the Old Testament. Sweetie, I know the Old Testament very well. And I want you to know that even the early church for about the first hundred years was building the church on the Old Testament. We didn't have a canonized list of New Testament scriptures till about the 6th century. And even the revelation was not agreed upon until the 9th century AD. So the fact that you and I have a Bible like we do, this is only about 150 years old. Gutenberg Press, yes, I know, in the 15th century made it all available very quickly. But I'm telling you, the early church, when Paul told Timothy, study the scriptures, he wasn't talking Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, and the epistles. He was talking Genesis to Malachi. So we have to be very careful when we start disparaging and dismissing the Old Testament. Even when you say, well, that's just full of a bunch of laws and stuff. You have no idea what you're talking about. The most legalistic passage in the whole Bible is Leviticus chapter 19. There's 31 commandments and 30 of them are in the New Testament. Well, 29 of them. That whole love your neighbor as yourself, that's in Leviticus 19. Don't prostitute your daughter, that's Leviticus 19. Don't trip blind people. There's a law that says don't trip blind people. Do you know why you give that law? Because Jews like tripping blind people, apparently. You only give laws when stupid people are doing it. <laughs> the fact that you have to say, don't trip blind people. Oh, man. <laughs> Luke 2.35, the, uh, the angel told Mary, yes, sword shall pierce your own soul. The thoughts of many hearts, the thoughts of hearts may be revealed. Luke 3.15, and as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not. Luke 9.47, and Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set him by him. Luke 24.38, and he said unto them, why are you troubled, and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? He's judging their thoughts, and they're not praiseworthy. Acts 5.4, let's get on this side of the cross. Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? church service talking to a church couple who was notorious for good giving, Ananias and Sapphira. Why have you conceived or formulated or constructed this thing in your heart? These folks are about to die, Ananias and Sapphira. We know the story. But Peter says by the Holy Spirit, you've made a construct of deceit and embezzlement in your heart, not their spirit. 
because they're two different entities. You've not lied unto men, but unto God. Acts 8.22. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray if God, if perhaps, uh, pray God if perhaps the thought of thy heart may be forgiven thee. That's Simon the sorcerer, the newly converted one, the spirit-filled one. He got spirit-filled there in Acts 8. And Peter the apostle is telling him, you need to repent of your wicked thoughts. Repent of the thoughts of your heart. Amen. The heart acts like the will. Numerous scriptures confirm that the heart acts like the will. A heart is what we want and keep wanting. That's the will. We want to change our hearts. We must change what we want and keep wanting. We submit our wills, our dreams, our wants, our desires, and our lusts to the plan, destiny, and will of God. If Jeremiah 21, 11 says, I know the plans I have for you, why do you have your own plans? Is it 21, 11? 29, 11, yeah, yeah. Thank you. 29, 11. I was casting a demon out of a lady one time. She had a lot of tattoos, but the one that caught my eye was Jeremiah 29, 11 on her wrist. She's on the floor growling, foaming at the mouth and gnashing her teeth and cussing. And I thought, a lot of good that verse is doing you right now, sweetie. Jeremiah 29, 11 tattooed on her drug-riddled body. Scriptures work better when they're on your heart, not on your tramp stamp. Acts eleven twenty three. 23, who, when he, Barnabas, came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all, and that with purpose of heart, he's telling the church with purpose, that they, with purpose of heart, should cleave unto the Lord. If the heart and the spirit are the same, why would you have to teach somebody's spirit to cleave to God? Purpose of heart. You must purpose in your heart, we're going to cleave to God as one local body. Romans 1, 24, wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts. We deal with lust of heart to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. What did they want in their heart? It's one thing to have thoughts buffet you, but just because you have thoughts buffeting you doesn't mean you act on it. One of the stories you guys know I tell you over and over again was about the guy. He was in one of my classes I taught at Tech years ago. And when I handed out the syllabus the first of the semester, the Lord spoke to me and said, he's a homosexual. And we became friends over the course of the semester. He'd come to my office for help with the lab I was teaching. And I finally got to witness to him. I said, what's your deal? I try to bring up God. You always shoot me down. He said, I'm gay to the core and I hate it. And I said, well, his name was Brooke. I said, Brooke, have you had sex with a man? He said, no. I said, then you're not gay. You're just buffeting in your head. I said, I'm 22. I think about sex all day long. I have to cast it down constantly, but I don't act on it. And I said, and you don't have to act on this either. He was actually a Presbyterian pastor's son. His brother was a missionary, I think, in India. I don't remember. And he used to daydream about preaching to the world, and he'd go preach to the trees behind his house. But he was buffeted by these demonic homosexual thoughts. And I told him, I tried to disciple him when he'd come to my office to work on geology stuff. Tried to teach him how to cast down thoughts. And unfortunately, that was the spring semester. In the summer semester, he went and worked at one of our gay restaurants over here and saw him in the fall, and he was a full-fledged flaming queen, which he did not have any of that on him when I met him, which was why I was surprised when the Lord said he's a homosexual. He broke every gay stereotype I'd ever developed. But when I saw him after the summer, he was a queen. You know the term flaming? He fit it. He was on fire. And it was evident from across the library. But the thing went from a buffeting attack in his mind to a lust of his heart to where he could not control his insatiable desire to consume male flesh. He was 31 and his boyfriend was 18 because I had his boyfriend in my lab that summer as well. 
they worked at the restaurant together. It's amazing this information you get when the Lord wants you to know it. Romans 10.1, brethren, my heart's desire. What you mean? Paul had a desire of his heart. And my prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. My heart's desire. Did you know not everybody has a heart for Israel to be saved, but we're all born again in the Spirit? Peter never said he had a heart to see Israel saved. Some of you have a heart to see your people saved, but you don't have a heart to see my people saved. And I'm not disparaging that. We just, our hearts are different. But you'd think if the heart and the Spirit were the same thing, we'd want everything equally. But we don't want everything equally because our hearts are not the same thing as our spirit. We have, our heart is whatever we've trained it to want. And if you don't have a heart for a lost, you can develop a heart for the lost. Amen. 1 Corinthians 7.37 Nevertheless, he that standeth steadfast in his heart, having no necessity but have power or authority over his own will, hath so decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin, or that is to marry or not to marry, he doeth well. So that's a verse that says you can stand fast in your heart, but Paul's implication is not everybody in your church has that ability to stand fast, having authority over their will. But this is a very critical verse because it locks it. It begins to show the breakdown and how the, the will can be unlocked, how you can restrain your will or let it go and have no restraint. The heart acts like the emotions. Numerous scriptures confirm that the heart acts like the emotions. Our heart is whatever we emote and keep emoting. If we want to change our hearts, we must control our emotions. Romans 9, 2. I have a great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart for Israel's salvation. 2 Corinthians 2, 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears. Not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. James 3, 14. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, notice James is telling a born-again, spirit-filled church that they are capable of two wicked emotions in their hearts. If the heart and the spirit is the same, then they are guilty of having wickedness in their born-again spirit. Doesn't fit, does it? I think when you see the doctrine, you realize that this is easy to see. But we also know we can develop bitter envying in our hearts. When someone gets a position you want, it's easy to develop envy and strife. When someone gets promoted and you get demoted, it produces envy and strife in your hearts. But it wasn't there before the promotion took place. You don't, <laughs> this is how fickle the heart is. We bought our, our house is now 10, 11 years old. I never cared about yards. I've always done yard work. I've always, I worked on farms in high school. Uh, I've always been an outdoorsy guy. Never cared much about a yard. I always hated a yard because as a kid, I was cutting the grass at eight and nine years old. And then we get our house 10 or 11 years ago, and all my neighbors are retirees, and they have eight grand to drop on sod to produce the most immaculate leprechaun-looking front yard. <laughs> and within like six weeks of having a house, I'm just happy to have a house. Now, all of a sudden, I have yard lust. I have bitter envying and strife in my heart for all I can grow is weeds in those days. All, and, and the neighbors, they, you know, they don't have kids. They, don't, they have grandkids who live seven states away. They got nothing to spend their money on but grass. And I drive up and my yard looks like Arizona and their yard looks like Ireland. And it quickly, it wasn't there before, but I was in consumed of lust and envy and embarrassment and shame. And I'm keeping it all at bay because I know my own doctrine here, but I'm like, isn't that how fickle the heart is? I, I didn't care. And I totally understood why some people just paint their yard green with paint. 
because I've seen that done too. Or just put AstroTurf out there just so it's always green. And 10 years later, with a lot of money and a lot of Marlin's work, my front yard looks like Leprechaunville, and I am the envy of our street now. People pull up, even last week, two weeks ago, with Dr. Jacobs, one of the pastor's wife, says, Pastor Chris, your yard looks amazing. I said, yeah, because I don't let people walk on it while she's walking in the front of my yard. I said, Miss Jonna, get out of my yard. <laughs> if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, that lust for green grass did not come out of my spirit, man. But I'm telling you, I had to keep it at bay. I had to work on patience and contentment. I'd sow grass, it would come up and then die. It wasn't there. It came out of nowhere. But it wasn't coming out of my born-again spirit, man. But it consumed me. Amen. That's why if you visit Marlon's house, park in the yard. He'll love you for it. We can control our soul, and Marlon needs to be tested. If we can control our mind, our will, and our emotions, and we can then we can change our hearts. Every Bible commandment demonstrates that we have the ability to submit our will to the will of God. If God commands it, we can submit and do it. That means we can control what we want. The nine fruit of the Spirit demonstrate we have the ability to control our emotions. Because if you think about the nine fruit of the Spirit, many of them are emotions. Goodness, gentleness. If you can't be gentle to your own family, what's wrong with you? Peace. That's a strong emotion. Joy. You know, when you're happy, you can't be malicious and joyful at the same time. So know that when you're a caveman jerk or a tyrant or a siren of the sea screeching out banshee songs, you have manifested not love, joy, and peace, but the dark force of all of that, the antithesis. Men become cavemen. Women become those banshee sirens that, you know, you see in mythology. And rocks crumble and people turn to stone and creatures just scatter. And then they want to know why they're so miserable in life. Have you heard your voice? Have you heard it? <laughs> you end up in a mythological labyrinth somewhere guarding a treasure that nobody really wants. We'll just start calling you Medusa. Romans 12, 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Philippians 2, 5. Let this mind be in you. Philippians 4, 8. Think on these things. This proves we can control how we think. All right? We're just summarizing, honestly, like 14 years of doctrine and we're already out of time, but I'm going to take more time because I don't get to preach this morning. The voice of our heart. This is something else we critically looked at. The Romans warns us to say not in our heart. That means our heart has a voice. And I've taught you to ask God to let you hear it. Your heart has something to say about everything. Man, those prices have gone up. Wow, that's cheap. Wow, that's a pretty car. Ooh, that's an ugly beater. Ooh, it's cold. Your heart is always saying something. Our heart has a voice which can be heard as three different manifestations. The heart's voice will manifest as your conscience. Why did we do that? Why We should have never done that. I'm such a moron. Oh, that's the voice of your heart. But it's programmed by what you write on the table of your heart. Because if you're not told that's wrong, you don't feel bad when you do it because you don't know it's wrong. Our spirit man has a voice, but it is not the voice of our conscience. If that was the case, we'd all have the same convictions. We don't all have the same convictions because we don't all have the same heart. Therefore, we don't all have the same conscience. The Bible succinctly defines the conscience in Romans 2.15, the law written in their hearts. Notice the law written on a heart. Whatever's written on a heart affects the conscience, bearing witness, the thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. We had a whole lesson on the conscience. Uh, the voice of our heart manifests as faith. Faith is of the heart. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness. The woman with the issue of blood said within herself, she said within herself, the voice of her heart said, if I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. 
Jesus declared that this was faith, and it made her whole. So there are times when the voice of our heart is manifesting as faith. And truthfully, your conscience is your faith convicting you. Man, that's the prettiest thing I've ever seen. That's faith. That's what you believe. I believe that's the prettiest thing I've ever seen. That's both your conscience and faith. And then attitude. This is the one we covered in earnest a few weeks ago. Our attitudes or mental dispositions are also the voice of our heart. Whether our heart adores or despises a situation, it will be evident through our attitude. All nine fruit of the Spirit are best described as attitudes the Holy Spirit wants to create in our hearts. If you think about it, self-control is an attitude. Gentleness is an attitude. Faithfulness is an attitude. Kindness is an attitude. Love is an attitude. Peace is an attitude. If we try to look at the fruit of the Holy Spirit as spirit, we get real mystical. But if we can see it as simple as an attitude, it's what our heart says. I want to walk in love. I want to be full of joy. I choose to be full of joy. I choose to be gentle. I choose to be kind. I choose to operate in self-control towards me first. You can't control yourself. You're not qualified to control anything else. Then there are attitudes, and it comes out of our heart. The gift, that is our heart. Now, here's what I want to add that's new, because we spent so many weeks showing about how wicked our heart can be. It's easy to get into a ditch thinking, well, there's nothing good, there's nothing good, there's nothing good. And I have to point out that though the Bible says we have the sin nature and that this is a body of death, and oh, wretched man that we are, and we're aware of all that, the Bible also says, but this is the temple of the Holy Ghost. And this is fearfully and wonderfully made. And God wants to anoint this and anoint my hands and anoint my voice. And so it's a tension that it's both cursed and it's corruptible and must be put off. And yet it's the temple of God and it's anointed of him and it's fearfully and wonderfully made. And it's a beautiful thing. I just, I really, religion, especially this region, boy, it's exhausting to pastor here. We, the crown of this road is so steep. We either go this way or we go this way. And we don't even know how to find a balance down the middle. Oh, wretched man that I am. But man, it's amazing how God made this thing to work. How my teeth work, how my muscles work, how my eyes work. But I hate the sin nature. And boy, this thing can smell sometimes. But man, it's capable of tremendous things. And God dwells in it. So it's the same way with the heart. It's wicked and desperately and sick and incurably so. And yet, it's capable of great things. Though we have emphasized the biblical point that the heart is desperately wicked and curably sick, we mustn't forget the wonderful things of which the heart is capable. It is true that God has called us to do the impossible, move mountains with that which is corrupted, our hearts of faith. But as with all doctrines, there are ditches and balances. Our hearts are capable of faith, without which we can't please God. Our hearts are capable of love, without which our faith cannot work. Our hearts are capable of forgiveness, without which we cannot have fellowship with God or man. Our hearts are capable of obedience, without which we cannot finish our race. They're capable of joy, without which life is miserable. Our heart is capable of earnest care, without which we become calloused and cold. And I have verses for all of this, obviously. Our hearts are capable of being pure, without which we cannot truly love one another. Love one another with pure and unfeigned faith and love. Our hearts are capable of unity, without which God has difficulty uh, moving. Our hearts are also where the love of God has been shed abroad, so that's hopeful and optimistic. Our hearts are where the word of God is to be written. Our hearts are where the light of God shines. Our heart is where we sing and make melody to the Lord. So hopefully this is all encouraging. Let us be ever mindful of the nature and condition of our hearts that we might guard it above all else. 
and submit it to the will of God for his glory and our protection. Amen. Father, we do thank you for these 13 lessons you've given us on the heart. I pray that this doctrine systematically expounded upon would bless people. I pray, Lord, that those who listen in the future would be revolutionized and know how to change their attitudes, saving their marriages and their children, their careers, their ministry. Uh, Father, we thank you for this life-changing doctrine. You've shown us the mechanics of how to maintain our heart. May we maintain it and fine-tune it so that it purrs like a kitten and runs like a, a hemi V8 for your glory. Glorify us, Lord, by anointing us to serve you. Your word says, then he glorified. Lord, we need that glorification, that you would exalt us in due season. May that be the season after we get our hearts right. Father, we submit to you, we honor you, and we love you. We give you honor and glory. Help us, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.